This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Support for today's show comes from Google Play. Did you know that you can download and listen to audiobooks on Google Play? That's right. With hands-free listening using Google Assistant or Chromecast, you can enjoy thousands of titles a la carte, no subscription necessary. There's even multi-device integration across the Google ecosystem. And for a limited time, you get $10 off your first one by visiting g.co slash play slash book riot. That's g.co slash play slash book riot. Find your story with audiobooks on Google Play. This is the Book Riot Podcast, weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 275. We're recording on Friday, August 24th. I'm Jeff O'Neill. I am here with Rebecca Shinsky. Hello, hello. We're coming to you from bookriot.com. Well, the feedback was some... Uh, it's kind of like a, a cheap wine that you get at Target. Some are like, hey, that's pretty drinkable. And the other's like, never again. So, you know, <laughs> that's where we were. So it was experiment. Uh, you know, I don't know what metaphor I, we were, some were saying, I think I used a boat metaphor because I'm all reading fishing books now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's the lifeboat in the Titanic. And some people are like, well, maybe that should just drown. Maybe, you know, Michelle, <laughs> Michelle, had the best feedback, which was, that was interesting, but I think you need a second person, even if that second person is a lay person, which I think is her way of saying anything but just you by herself. Like just any, <laughs> pull someone off the street, uh, you know, get a ventriloquist dummy, just anything other than that. So You know, I texted Michelle at one point that I was relieved because if it had been like really bad, I knew that she would tell you before I had to. Yes, right, right. Um, so anyway, it, 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 I think she wasn't saying her, Michelle saying it was interesting is truth. That's not a euphemism when right. it comes from Michelle. She's like, that was mm-hmm. interesting. Never do it again. So that, that's, that's <laughs> the, that's what we're, that's the plan you is know, to never do it again. It feels like maybe we're getting back in the saddle here. It's actually a weekday while we're recording. I know, right. It's not Saturday morning. That's right. We have a lot of stuff on the agenda. Yeah. The, the last, a, the last like, show really of, um, the summer. Because next week we're we're, yeah. we're on the verge of September. A lot of stuff when the calendar rolls September. A lot of new books coming out um, starting pretty quick. So I think yeah, it's our know, first sort of lazy. Yeah, next Friday week. will be the last summer Friday of publishing. Right uh, for the for the folks in publishing who've observed summer Fridays, and then we'll be like right back into hopefully a more normal news cycle. But there's been plenty of stuff happening this week. Um, Before we get into the news, this is the last week to enter to win 16 of the books that have been featured on our Recommended podcast, which if you have not listened to Recommended, each episode is only about 15 minutes long. It features two interesting people from the world of books. We've got writers, publishing folks, all kinds of people, each talking about a book that they love. And the interviewer is cut out of it. So it's basically just like a seven-minute recommendation from an interesting person followed by another seven minute mm-hmm. recommendation from an interesting person. Uh, you can check out who's been on the show by checking out recommended on Apple podcasts or whatever your podcatcher is. And if you want to win 16 of the books featured on the show, both the author's who have been on the show and the books that they have recommended, go to bookriot.com slash recommended three. That's the number three to enter to win by August 31st. 
feedback um, about the Instagram book giveaway. Um, a few insiders have tried it. Um, that we got feedback on the forum. We got a couple emails about people who tried. I guess something similar one round made the rounds on Facebook a while ago. Basically the same setup, and the people got between zero and three books in mm-hmm. return. So a, a far cry from your thirty six, but also not a total skunking. I guess. Um, what was the ins- what was the insiders feedback similar? I'm, I'm just now remembering. Yeah, the Facebook I think there ones. were three folks on insiders yeah. who had done it. Two of them said they got one or two books, and one person said that they didn't get any. Yeah. Um, so spotty success, but mostly not a total wash. You know, I'm surprised given how I don't know how low the level of the success is that the thing survived at all. Like we were, I was talking to Michelle about old Shane letters from back in the day, like we talked about last week. It's like mm. no one ever seemed to get letters in return, and yet the chain letter survived. So it's kind of like I don't know. It's like the hope of a mushroom where you just spend all these spores in the air and you don't expect all of them to turn into mushrooms, but just like one or two do. That's the, the thing that survives is the chain letter, not that people get a bunch of returns back from it, I yeah, guess. Yeah, I was going to say, I think it has so much to do with Hope Springs Eternal right. of like, this sounds like fun. If it works, getting 36 books back when you only sent one book out is excellent. So, you know, it's a low risk for a potentially high reward. Mm-hmm. And the hope of that is fun and, you know, something to hold on to. Yeah, what's the, the Stephen Jay Gould book was like the hungry, the, what was it? The selfish gene, right? Mm-hmm. Where the, the, basically the point of all life is just to get the genes passed on to the next level. It doesn't matter how many people have to die or pain or whatever, as long as you, this one, I think is the uh, hungry meme is what this is. You know, just a particular, you know, the, the, the goal is to pr- precipitate the mean meme itself, not that you're actually going to get a bunch of return on it. So anyway, um, I guess if you try it, have different other success than that, or just want to throw your data point into the pool, uh, let us know podcast at bookriot.com. Let's do our first sponsor of the day. It's Nightblood. It's the heart pounding finale of Ellie Blake's gorgeously written and action packed Frostblood saga. The fate of Frostbloods, Firebloods and all of humanity is at stake. In this heart-pounding finale, Ellie Blake's coarsely written and action-packed Frostblood saga. Ruby's world has changed the protagonist more than she ever could have imagined. She's in love with a powerful Frost King. She's the heir to the Fire Throne. Well, there's a problem there. You can tell already. That's not going to work. And she may be in Night Blood, the spawn of a vengeful deity hell-bent on releasing his wraith-like Minax from their prison. Once freed, these beasts will roam the earth, devouring every last person until he or she is nothing but an empty husk. You know, I've had days like that. Um, but Ruby is able to control them in extra degree, and now she, her beloved Arcus, and her friend Kai must find a way to bring Frostbloods and Firebloods, sworn enemies, together to make a stand against a foe more deadly than any they've faced. That's Ellie Blake, Nightblood, the end of the saga, which means you can begin the saga. O'Neill's razor has been fulfilled. <laughs> the prophecy has come to pass. Go check out Nightblood by Ellie Blake. Thanks for them for sponsoring the show. All right. What's up? What do we want to do? Okay. Well, you know, one of my favorite things that's been happening this summer is we've been getting more frequent reading recommendation lists from President Barack Obama. 
the reader in chief still in my heart forever, probably. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they've been really interesting. He did an entire one a month or so ago, uh, books about and set in Africa because he was uh, undertaking some travel. And this one is shorter, but also very interesting. He's recommending Tara Westover's Educated, a memoir about growing up in a survivalist family in Idaho and ultimately leaving to seek education. Uh, Which that book has been selling, by the way. Yeah, did you read that? No, I have it on my shelf in hardback, but I haven't gotten to it yet. Fascinating. Anyway. Uh, But you know, I do love a memoir about escaping from a kind of fringe or culty childhood. Uh, Warlight by Michael Ondaatje, which is set after World War II, and uh, Obama calls it a meditation on the lingering effects of war on family. Uh, with the passing of V.S. Naipaul, he reread A House for Mr. Biswas, uh, and he writes about that. And then I think this is the most exciting one to me and that mm. I've seen on the bookish internet far and wide, An American Marriage by Tayari Jones, which uh, Obama calls a moving portrayal of the effects of wrongful conviction on a young African-American couple. And that's, I think, the most succinct way to sum the book up, Um, along with Factfulness by Hans Rosling, which is the book that we talked about a few months ago that Bill Gates was offering a free copy of to every, uh, I think, to every high school graduate or college graduate this year. I can't remember which one, but Obama is reading it as well and calls it an outstanding international public health expert, a hopeful book about the potential for human progress when we work off of facts rather than our inherent biases. Mm Mm-hmm. Interesting list. Um, whenever we see one of these lists from uh, from the uh, former the artist formerly known as POTUS, we have interesting questions, right? Mm-hmm. About so maybe the close reader. It's a close reader. Here's what I've been reading. So for all we know, he hasn't finished any of these, ah, right? Mm-hmm. And also these these are the descriptions are merely that he doesn't. There's no adjective. I mean, there, there's no or there's no evaluation, is what I'm trying to say. It's, a, I guess, a moving portrayal, outstanding mm-hmm. international. He's an expert. It's, I don't know. It's again, it's very. It's got PR speak still in it. Like, there's no real endorsement, except that I, his reading this, is of course, an implicit endorsement. But beyond that, I just think it's interesting how these things are phrased. Right? Yeah, how this goes. it is interesting. I'm going to quibble. I think a little bit with the with the close reading of here's what I've been reading as like, well, we don't necessarily know that he's finished these if only because years of experience on the internet has taught us that it's dangerous to like publicly recommend or endorse a book you haven't finished. Um, because if there is something that people are going to object to that, then you have to be responsible for. I would like to think that president Obama and his PR team are canny enough to like, here's what I've to have. Here's what I've been reading mean. I've at least, if I haven't finished these, I've re- I've read enough of them to know I'm confident. Well, yeah, but you it. know how we do, like when we do, a, when one of our writers does a 50 best list, mm-hmm. they're not necessarily reading the book, but they might do a little, uh, staff work to make sure it's, it's cool. That's I don't true, know. I don't yeah. want to be too cynical. I just think the whole thing is interesting. Like here's what I've been reading. And then there's really not much, by the way, of like three of five star. I mean, that's being crass, but you mm-hmm. know what I'm getting at. like in terms of recommendation. Maybe this is just enough. Yeah, um, I, but it's, I it's, perceive these to be recommendations. Um, sure. 
Well, and maybe would, he's read other things too, and they didn't make the list. Right. Just yeah, the whole that's construction see, is fascinating. Yeah, that's really what I have questions about. Is like, what else are you reading that yeah. didn't make this list? And then the big question, of course, is and how do these books make their way into yes. your hands? Like we do um, during the Obama presidency, we got stories every summer about them visiting. I believe it's called Bunch of Grapes. Is the bookstore at Martha's mm-hmm. Vineyard, um, and what books? the family selected for their vacation. But when you're not like, when, when you're president Obama and you're not wandering a charming indie bookstore on your summer vacation, how are recommendations making their way to you? And I'm sure Tyari Jones wants to know how he ended up picking up. Or or maybe she doesn't know. I mean, I don't, I mean, it was an Oprah book. So, I mean, it's not the signal from some of these is pretty strong. Like Mm-hmm. Naipaul won the, the the Nobel Prize. Ondaje is one of the great, you know, sort of international phenomenon authors. Educated is a big nonfiction title. Factfulness had the Bill mm-hmm. Gates bump. So he, he's not pulling he's not pulling little fish out of obscurity. Right, that's here. true. None of these are like mid list or surprises. Right. Yeah, I, I just find the whole you know if anyone from Obama staff ever wants to talk to us, we'll make it. We'll make time, a few minutes for you. You know, we'll, <laughs> we'll go out of our way to make sure. You can tell us how these things are. The pa- I guess the the books themselves are fine. You know, they're fine. Yeah. I, you're not surprised by anything. I'm not like, oh, wow, that's interesting. But I think the um, the baking of this cake is maybe more interesting to me yeah, than the, the I, cake itself. I agree, too. And I do I, – I, like, wish for the day that we'll see something kind of weird on this list. I don't know if we ever will. What would turn your head? Like, I, I don't even PR, know. Like, what, what would, would – like, what will you've read recently that would turn your head or seen recently? Oh, um – well, recent titles, I can't come up with anything. But like, if if we projected this backwards, if Obama had talked about reading like night film, right, um, several years back, or I don't like Alyssa Nutting, you know, like somebody, <laughs> yeah, like Tampa. yeah so somebody like somebody who does interesting messes. Yeah, um, I would just be curious about like what is, like Obama has range, um, but I'm curious about really what the range of his re- literary interests yeah. are. Uh, or like, you know, weird? maybe like, I don't know, go genre, right? You know, go like, what if there's mm. a romance novel on there? Like yeah, the internet, like, the internet um, would catch on fire. It was sure, the romance people that, like, would be thrilled. And then all the other pe- morons that get upset about romance <laughs> would also be on, everything <laughs> would be even, on fire. Even something that's just more fun, like it would be great to see Crazy Rich Asians nah. on this list. You know, it's great, well-written fiction. That's that's fun. You don't yeah. read that book for edification purposes. And I want, I just need it to be true for myself that Obama just reads things for fun sometimes. You know, that makes me think of our, a shared, like an internal obsession that's going around like the flu is with um, Bad Blood by John mm-hmm. Carreyrou, which... Yeah. I would be surprised to see that on his list, not because it's not an interesting or great read, but because the Obama administration was fairly cozy with Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos, like she was right. on something, whatever. That would be, I don't know, that would be a wink, that would be a self-shade. I don't even know what that would be. I would like to see something Such. like that, where it's like, not all, mm-hmm. I don't know. There'd be an, that's, there's a little edge to that, I guess, something like that. Yeah, that yeah, right, right. It. Something a little edgy or a little you know weird would be great. Genre, of course, would be amazing yeah genre um, would be amazing. or even like bird box or a really like a something dark and twisty like a dark mm. thriller you know would just be i just want to know like really what's your range because right. what he's presenting what we always see in these public lists is something that like isn't really going to rock any boats it's no. very palatable yeah. Um, yeah and maybe that's the breadth of his literary taste but i need to believe just for myself that like 
it's possible that a Sarah McLean romance might show up on his shelf one day. Yeah. What's well, a, a bunch of grapes? That's the name. It's, I like how that bookstore is like the Fox News of independent bookstores. Like, you know, like Trump watches just Fox News alone. So it has all this outsized influence. Well, a bunch of grapes like has this, like that. It is like the, 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 I don't know, the megaphone for mid-list literary fiction. Cause Obama will come watch. Like, like when they come, they start certain stuff cover out that they want him to pick like i'd like to know that all, all that stuff I'd find is somebody actually hand selling or is he just browsing actually this is the interview that i want is yeah. to talk to the booksellers and maybe the level we could actually get right. <laughs> <laughs> assuming that there aren't a bunch of non-disclosures right and that probably would kill the golden goose if they come and spilled their guts about how the, but how I the bet, sausage is made i bet we have bookseller listeners who maybe if they have not hand sold to the president oh. have encountered other fancy people and could tell us like, is, is it typically a situation where you just let them mm. browse or are you hand selling or is it like a wait to hand sell when you've been asked what your opinions are right. kind of situation? Um, don't speak until spoken to kind of a right. deal. I don't know. If Barack Obama walked into the independent bookstore that you own or work in, what would you hand? Yeah. Him? What would you do? Like, I don't even know. Right, what besides, you, like, just die on yeah, the spot. You wouldn't know what to do with your eyes. <laughs> hands, as we say inside the, the company here. Uh, all right, let's move along. In the story of the summer for Book Riot podcast nerds, just because mm-hmm. of uh, all the, the trails it's taken us through, um, more uh, is feedback? Well, what would you call this particular story? I guess we're just yeah, deeper dives. Like What's interesting to you? We're in the op-ed cycle Yes, here. yes. Well, I mean, it tells you one thing, that the title of this publisher's weekly pit piece is a dystopian twist for library ebooks, and I've got to say, first of all, settle settle down. Settle yeah, down. that's today in hyperbolic headlines. Yeah, dystopian twist is you know I come on, easy, easy. Uh, all right, so and you also know it's personally, comma I've been synthesizing my thoughts to communicate. You just, that's, that's the kind of thing this is personally. Mm-hmm. If you say I, first of all, the writing instructor is like, I know who you are. If you're saying <laughs> I've been doing something, I know it's personal. You don't have to write personally, but that's the, I'm not going to confuse that your writing is sort of a chipmunk <laughs> oh, or something. Man, there's a couple bees in your bonnet. here. I don't know what, it, I, you know, like I, I guess this is, this is my cycle of a story like this is I go through the, the, the first part of being interested. Then I have my questions and counter readings and then I feel like the backflow of opinions like this, and then I sort of having self backlash to like people getting worked mm-hmm. up about it. I don't know what that says about me, but that's just how I work. Anyway, I don't know. What, what do you think? Well, I mean, is there well, anything here? What, what I mean, did you so the, think the is interesting? The piece is by Sari Feldman, who's yep. the executive director at the Cuyahoga County Public Library in Cleveland, Ohio. She's a former president of the Public Library Association and of the ALA, the American Library yeah. Association. So she's coming from a pretty high-level place, and she's talking about um, how readers have discovered great, thousands of readers have discovered great tour titles at their libraries, and that this change um, in tours policy, which as a recap, or if you missed the show a couple weeks ago... If you haven't is, listened in like 12 weeks... And missed all if this episode. is not the thing you're obsessed with this summer, <laughs> congratulations, you're yeah. more interesting than we are. <laughs> oh man, Jeff, we... we we need to work on this. I know. <laughs> Tor has decided not to make ebooks available for library lending until four months after their publication because ebooks, uh, ebook library lending was determined. They've determined that it um, is cannibalizing 
ebook sales. Uh, so there have been all kinds of responses, but she's talking here about, um, with the change, library ebook readers have lost the privilege of timely access to tour titles. And I think that word privilege is important mm. because it acknowledges that readers don't have like a, an inherent right um, to read any book on the day that it comes out in any format and for any price mm. that they want. Um, I'm not certain that that was her intention in using that word in this sentence, but I do think that that's the thing to latch onto in this discussion is that um, libraries exist to offer readers access to material for free, but publishers are not under an obligation to make those materials available to libraries at the same time that they sell them because a publisher's job, a publishing company's job ultimately is returning value to their shareholders. And that means making money. And if you can't make money because you're giving books to libraries too soon for lending, that's a decision that the publishers have a right to make. Mm -hmm. um, readers might not like it. Um, but it's very telling this, the use of the word privilege here, because that's what it is. If you are able to access a, a book for free by checking it out at your library on the same day that it's published and the publisher is able to do that without losing money or losing too much money, that's not a thing you're entitled to. It's a thing you've gotten to experience so far. And that Tor is making this change is like, this is just a business decision that Tor mm. is making. And I understand why libraries and readers don't like it because it's great to be able mm -hmm. to access a book in any format you want for any price or for free all on the same day. Um, but it ultimately, I think, is a privilege. Access to the library, access to information is a right, but access, like when you get that information or when you get a book um, for free, I, I think is a privilege. So that was the place I really went here. I didn't find a whole lot interesting other than like, it's, I wonder if the librarians really think that the, like the, it's not quite a flood. It's like a gentle rain of op-eds is yeah. going to make any difference. Yeah. And I think we, I think we cut to the quick of this pretty quickly when we were trying to figure out and we found, what was the name? Panorama, that name of that like weird yes, shadow organization project. that was a larger study of the effect of library access on book sales. Because this, this person, I've forgotten the name of this writer already. Um, she links to, she says, you know, presumably what they want to do is see if this increases their sales, basically. Right. And she says, well, actually, she sort of throws off as, I don't know, established fact that it's the opposite. And then links to this piece that I read, which makes a circumstantial case for libraries increasing sales. I think I'm taking Tor at face value here, which is they want to see. Because mm -hmm. I think... The bottom line in this situation will be if they find that their sales are worse, they will go back to lending them at, at street date. Yeah, yeah. I think, I, I think they're so not going to do anything out of their interest just to be jerks. It just so happens that the thing that libraries don't want them to do might happen if they find that, you know what, by not making these ebooks available on street date, we make more money. And which also, just to put it out there, gets more money to authors. Just so I, I don't know. I think. I think there's a bit of, I don't, I don't know if obfuscation is the right thing or, or cloudy reasoning or motivated reasoning where I think the library, my, I get, here's what I'm trying to, I'm circling around it. I think the best argument libraries could make would be an absence of data that suggests that 
making available at street day for libraries is hurts it or helps mm-hmm. that there is a case to be made to get the books out in front of readers anyway, and that this is a yeah. public good and publishers should do it just because it is in their best mm-hmm. interest in the Agreed. long run to do it. Mm-hmm. I think it would be very difficult if Tor comes out and says, here's what we found, that we actually make 50% more money per title if we do this embargo thing. I think in that case, it would be difficult for me to say, well, Tor should do it as a public good. Like, it'd also be good if I paid 80% of my salary in taxes to other people, except it'd be good for everyone except me. And that that line between where it's good for the company and the author and where it's good for the libraries and the public good, I think is what's being negotiated here. Um, and I don't have the right answer. It, as I said before, it would surprise me if it just so happens the way that everyone has done things from the beginning with libraries is also the most optimal sales supply demand curve mm-hmm. for publishers. I would be surprised by that. So, yeah, you know, if, if publishers can have their cake and eat it too, they will, which would be, let's assume that they get a, a positive or I don't know, they get a, a result to suggest that this embargo helps their sales then they're going to do it, and that will be a new reality. And I just don't know if not having it on the street date erodes the library's brand. It says, you know, is that is that a crisis? It's a change, um, but I don't know. And she uses a comparison to Netflix. I'm like, well, you know what? On Netflix, you don't get you don't get you can't stream the movie the day it comes out in theaters. You right. can't. Uh, you can't get the movie at the library the day it comes out in theaters. You've got to wait to come out on DVD. Like, Why aren't we throwing a fit about that? Like, not that you should, but I'm just saying maybe I would like a more considered approach yeah. that just puts the, the prior assumptions mm-hmm. on the tape. I think that the place you got to there about that one of the things at the heart of this is the question about the public, like, like that it's a public good for books to be mm-hmm. available and how much responsibility do publishers have for that public good, um, especially on balance with the responsibilities that they have, business obligations right. is really interesting. And the Netflix comparison lends itself nicely there because we think of books as special, um, that it's not a big deal that you can't pull up Netflix and watch um, Crazy Rich Asians right now right. while it's in the theater. But we think of books as special and different where you should be able to get the book from your library for free at the same time that somebody else is paying $27 for a new hardcover. Um, and that's, I think it's just, that's not good or bad. It's just important for us to look at the fact that we think of books as special and different for reasons. And I think some of those reasons are very valid. Literature Mm -hmm. is a a public good um, and access to literature can be a public good. But the question about what a publisher's obligation there is up against the other obligations that they have to keep their businesses afloat um, is is the core of it. But that's not the way that it's being framed in book media. Uh, and she gears herself up for a real rallying cry at the end. And I thought where this was headed is like call for maybe a boycott of all tour titles. I mean, because mm-hmm. libraries also do have clout because yeah. as we talked about, the, the prices libraries pay for these titles is pretty high. And if they said, you know what, if you're going to embargo your tour ebook titles, we're not billing, we're, we're cutting our Macmillan budgets to 20%. Mm-hmm. That would certainly send a message. Um, cause as we, maybe as I talked about in my, um, 
ill-begotten soliloquy last week, you know, it adds up to a lot of money uh, if they decided just not to buy Macmillan titles. I wonder about how much unity librarians and libraries, especially acquisitions librarians, I guess, would be where the the real tip of the arrow would be, Mm -hmm. could get together and say, you know what, we have some collective bargaining we could do by where our dollars go. Um, And could they message it? Could they execute it? Could they hurt Tor more than Tor is being helped by whatever they find of this study if they acted collectively? Because I think there's a world, I, I would assume too, there's a world in which even there's a balance uh, a balance sheet argument for Tor to sell to libraries no matter whether mm-hmm. there's a public good argument or not. Like they don't want to sell zero books yeah. to libraries. That's right. not the answer either, I don't think, right? I mean, yeah. that's not my understanding. I would love to hear from our librarian listeners yeah. about this. Um, are you considering a response to Tor with something like this where you can adjust your Tor or Macmillan budget as a way to put pressure on them to change the policy back? Yeah. Is that something that you would do? Is it possible? Could librarians organize in this way? Let us know podcast at bookriot.com. I got a sponsor for you. You ready? Yes. This is Elizabeth Warren, Her Fight, Her Work, Her Life by Antonia Felix. Elizabeth Warren's rise as one of America's most powerful women is a stirring lesson in persistence. From her fierce support of the middle class to her unapologetic response to political bullies, Warren is known as a passionate yet plain-speaking champion of, of equity and fairness. In the wake of one fellow senator's effort to silence her in 2016, Three words became a rallying cry across the country. Nevertheless, she persisted. It really has. Like of the things that have stuck, that one has really stuck. Like I have a tank top that says this. Yes. In this breakthrough <laughs> biography, best-selling author Antonia Felix reveals how Warren brought her expertise to Washington to become an icon of progressive politics in a deeply divided nation and weaves together never-before-told stories from those who have journeyed with Warren from Oklahoma to the halls of power. Elizabeth Warren is one of the most popular and inspiring female politicians today from the nevertheless she persisted rallying cry to her New York Times bestselling books. She's on everyone's mind between running for re-election in the Senate in November and rumors of a potential 2020 presidential bid. I'd be surprised if there weren't at least a bid at this point. Warren is guaranteed to make headlines. Antonia Felix, who's the author, has a track record of writing respect, respected bestselling biographies about strong and fascinating women. Her past subjects have included Michelle Obama, Sonia Sotomayor, Laura Bush, and Condoleezza Rice. That's Elizabeth Warren, Her Fight, Her Work, Her Life by Antonia Felix. Thanks to them for sponsoring this week's show. Uh, happy, happy sounds. Happy good sounds, yes. Tell me. So the Hugo Awards were dominated by women this year, um, including N.K. Jemisin, who won her third Hugo for Best Science Fiction Novel. And to many people, this signals an end to the angst, the attempts by the sad puppies and whatever other bad puppies groups um, were active over the last few years to try to prevent female authors um, from not necessarily try to prevent female authors from getting recognition, but they were, well, that's exactly what they were doing. Yeah. Um, they didn't say it that way, but it was very much like the men's rights activists of uh, the Hugos who felt threatened that their books were no longer getting all the attention because books by women and books by people of color were rising up uh, and, you know, taking center stage. Mm-hmm. Um, so, this is, I mean, a third best novel win is incredible just by itself. So 
A plus, awesome, congratulations, and Kay Jemison. Um, she was also the first African American to win the best novel category when she won it for the fifth season in 2016. And um, this year, she gave just a hell of an acceptance yes. speech. Go watch um, it, listen to it so if you haven't. That's the there's a video in no. the story that we'll link to in the show notes that is worth checking out where she says, among many other things, as this genre finally, however grudgingly acknowledges that the dreams of the marginalized matter and that all of us have a future, so will the world. Uh, and really brings home, even in just that one sentence, but in the whole talk, what science fiction and fantasy writing, what the what the function of those is to help us imagine um, possible futures and how important that is in general, but how important it is specifically for telling stories that have not been told or given large platforms before. Um, so finally, some good news about this. Yeah, it's so fat. I mean, the, this trilogy is incredible. Um, so not a surprise, a history making, at least for mm-hmm. this particular award. But women uh, sweeping the boards at the ceremony – I really, you know, I, it's some version of the Streisand effect, which if you don't know what it is, is where by sort of trying to to erase something, you make attention to that thing even greater. And that's really all the sad puppies really did here was by trying to like sort of mm-hmm. cover up uh, to, to forestall the move towards inclusion in these awards, they just exacerbated and exacerbates not it makes it sound like a disease or something but they just they ushered it in more quickly than maybe would have happened anyway people like you know what screw these dudes we're gonna do this and really energized um people who had a different sensibility about it culminating in this unprecedented three-peat friend k jemison um so a good i think if you would have told us when we first boy that story was like 2015 i think when that i think so first happened um it would have been nice to have uh, someone show up in a DeLorean for two seconds to say, you know how this all plays out is that it goes the other way and N.K. Jemison wins three in a row and the, the, the puppies are essentially left in rubble, a husk of themselves to, to borrow from the ad read. Um, <laughs> you know, may, maybe knock on wood here. This is a microcosm of uh, the larger political landscape, but that would be interesting mm-hmm. to think about. Congratulations to N.K. Richly deserved. Um, oh, so much. So there's, Good news there. As speaking of politics, getting into books, we have, we should ring a bell or have a gong or something, <laughs> an actual case of attempted literary censorship where, and by actual case, Rebecca and I have, I don't know if it's a conservative or narrow or uh, to use the, the jargon of the Supreme Court, a plain text reading of censorship. Oh, I which, like to think of it as the right one. The, well, I mean, <laughs> plain text and right could be the same thing, which is, it ain't really censorship unless the government is involved. You know, it's not uh, we decided not to carry this book. It's not we decided to uh, not to pull he who shall not be named's book from public. You know, that's not censorship. That's just the marketplace of ideas. But where the marketplace ideas cannot function is when the government says you can't do this. And this is, um, you know, the second time uh, Trump or emissaries of Trump or minions, I guess, is the word we should use now send a cease and desist letter to an author or a publisher. The first time was for Mike Will's Fire and Fury, Simon Schuster. Also, Simon Schuster, props to SNS, actually, I guess, for withstanding this stuff. I know it's not easy, if, even if it seems clearly the right thing to do. Um, sent a cease and desist for a publication of Omarosa Manigault Newman's uh, Unhinged, 
an insider's account of the White House, warning of possible legal action. Trump's letter threatens substantial monetary damages and punitive damages should the book be published. I guess, now that I'm thinking about this, maybe is this being filed as a private citizen? I don't really know how this works. Like, apparently Trump says you can't be indicted as a president, but you Mm -hmm. can sue other people, which seems like a very... um, hypocritical you know i I got trump i beat him finally with that observation right there it's all over pack it up and go home yeah his lawyers sent the cease and desist letter but they have not filed a lawsuit and in an accompanying link that we'll have in the show notes where the um national coalition against censorship also responds to this issue they note that trump has complained publicly that libel laws are too weak yes um so there he has not sued Simon and Schuster, but it did attempt to block the publication um, of the book and the NCAC's response um, just stands alongside Simon and Schuster in continuing to publish it um, and opposing censorship, but also notes that on August 16th, more than 300 newspapers published editorials condemning the president's efforts to portray the press as the enemy of the people and yeah. uh, that they are standing in solidarity um, along with many other organizations and Simon and Schuster here. Yeah. So. so I don't know, maybe, maybe, maybe I guess using our working definition, this is on the precipice of censorship. If, you know, mm-hmm. it's kind of, it seems like this particular administration likes to do stuff like this, like nibble at the edges, take these oblique angles, try to find a, a workaround, an end run, mm-hmm. a shortcut um, without, you know, bothering with the law. Well, they it's also one it. of the things about this administration that, I think we're supposed to take as like, of course they do that. But right. that if in, in any other administration, like if someone had written a tell-all book about their time in the Obama White House yeah. and Obama had sent a cease and desist letter, there would have been Republicans rioting in the streets yeah, that's right. about exactly. it and all kinds of investigations and you know calls about freedom of the press and calls about um, censorship and First Amendment rights and like all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's just supposed to be like this is not normal and i think that that's the first thing to take away from it but like the president is trying not to have a book published um specifically because it says unkind things about him yeah yeah uh interesting um i'm gonna jump over we'll do our our last sponsor after this one um and we'll save the i don't know I, i guess it's the biggest news of the week about walmart but the toronto public library Became the first library in the world to lend over twenty million ebooks. I which wonder how many incredible. of them were from Tor. <laughs> uh, in twenty, so some of it, I think one thing that's interesting here to see the uh, hockey stick growth because it says in twenty uh, two thousand seven, pardon me, uh, scant eleven years ago, the Toronto Public Library started its first digital collection. There were just twenty five ebook titles. Oh man! And it wasn't exactly a murder. It wasn't exactly the twenty seven Yankees. Because one of those books was Astrology for Dummies, uh, <laughs> Crash Proof, How to Profit from the Coming Economic Collapse. And a book 17, about Joan of Arc. And 17 travel guides. <laughs> so nary a Margaret Atwood, nary a Allison, you know, I'm just trying to think of the great Canadian writers, <laughs> nary a Stephen King. Now, um, a year later, they moved from, they went from 25 to 1,500 titles in a year. Mm-hmm. And those were borrowed nearly 30,000 times. And then by 2017, 170 thousand titles borrowed 4.6 million times that year so we can do a little back of the envelope math that the average title in their collection was borrowed like 
is that right? 30 times in a year? Am I doing that mm-hmm. right? Something like that? I think so. That, yeah. you know, I'm not, get out your calculator. Uh, 4.6 <laughs> I was million unprepared for divided that. by 170,000. Um, let's see. Cipriano, uh, Maria Cipriano, the senior collection specialist for the library, has been responsible for the collection since 2011, says that ebooks, audiobooks, and e-video account for 18% of the library's circulation last year, which also answers another question you and I have had of late about mm-hmm. how has the rise, as we see here, and the availability of digital collections in libraries affected sales that shows up in the, the year end that we talk about. And it doesn't seem to be that the ebook and audiobook and digital lending writ large for libraries has even reached the levels we see for publishing, where ebooks yeah. alone are still 22, 23%. And that does include downloadable audio. So you throw it in a couple more percent there. So libraries, I think, still have some catching up to do. It'll be interesting to see in the long term if the equilibrium in libraries mirrors that of the the of, of trade sales. You know, will they have about the same percentage of physical versus digital? Um, so there's that there. Uh, what do you think? Anything? You know, any I think it's interesting. Here? They list the top twenty borrowed, yeah. most borrowed eBooks, um, and not really any surprises here. The Girl on the Train is number one. The Goldfinch by Donna Tart, um, Gone Girl, The Cuckoo's Calling, You Are a Badass by Jen Sincero, Fifty Shades of Grey, All the Light We Cannot See, The Racketeer, Life Changing Magic of Tidying Up. Our Boy Dan Brown with Inferno, Game of Thrones, The Book Thief, Quiet by Susan Cain. Actually, here's a surprise, if only because this book was huge in Canada because the author is Canadian. Mm. Not as big in the U.S., but All My Puny Sorrows by yeah. Miriam Toes. Uh, the Nest by Cynthia Dupree Sweeney. Uh, Do Not Say We Have Nothing by Madeline uh, Tian. The Luminaries I think she's by Canadian, Eleanor. too. I might be wrong about that. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, the Luminaries by Eleanor Catton, Fifty Shades Darker. Astrophysics for People in a Hurry by Neil deGrasse Tyson. That's kind Mm -hmm. of surprising to me. And David and Goliath by Malcolm Gladwell. And Cipriano notes when she was asked um, about the top 20, she said the pivotal moment for eBooks was Fifty Shades of Grey in 2011. Uh, Um, That title has been borrowed 9,305 times, putting hmm. it at sixth on the list. Um, And its combination of popularity and risque subject matter uh, she thinks drove interest in it, particularly in the ebook format, saying because it was an ebook, you could read it on the subway without anyone noticing. If ever there was a book that was meant for ebook publication, it was that one. Hmm. Uh, so, really interesting. I mean, Fifty Shades of Grey sold so many floppity Julian books in 2011 and 2012 um, that it would be, I had never considered this before, but I do think there was a lot of specific interest in reading that digitally. And I'm curious about if you could, if you could track that in ebook sales, in addition to um, library lending, where some, where people were really interested in reading the book, but also maybe did not want to be seen reading it in public for the variety of reasons that people don't like to sometimes read romances in public. Yeah, a couple other things. You can see the borrowing of the Toronto Public Library in real time with the the dashboard they have. It's a link at the very bottom of this. So interesting. Which is fascinating. I also thought the the shape of the curve of these top 20 was interesting. Like Mm. often you'll see a much wider spread in sales or just a number in a chart like this where, I mean, so the number 20 book, David and Goliath by Malcolm Gladwell, just over 7,000 times, and the number one title is just, what, 19,000? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's not quite triple, which you can see a lot more of a power law situation happen, and it's a relatively smooth curve all the way down, though notably, Girl on the Train, 6,000 more downloads than the number two spot. 
just to remind us all again, if we forgot, um, how big of a book that is. Though I wonder if there's some bias towards books after 2011, right? Uh, which mm-hmm. would be interesting. If, if, Sh- mm-hmm. if Fifty Shades of Grey really was the watershed moment, you would expect to see um, 2011 titles and after do a little bit better. And it's, you know, I don't know. It's, some of it is some of it's survivorship bias or whatever, mm-hmm. whatever else. One, uh, I, I must point out one person of color uh, on the list, yeah. Neil deGrasse Tyson. Um, so even when you're using the library and don't have to pay for it, this is the kind of distribution you get from readers picking um, mm-hmm. and all the things that go into that. Um, you know, we, 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 we ping publishers, I think rightly, we ping reviewers, I think rightly. Um, but also, you know, the rubber meets the road when people actually decide what to pick up off the shelf or on their iPad and this is what they pick up. So that's, I think, interesting to look at too there. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I guess you don't see things, I guess it's not since these are all, none of them were backlist, right? I mean, in terms of like, these were available new, mm-hmm. except for Game of Thrones, which I right. thought was interesting. The only title that was published before the the library had a digital collection, um, Game of Thrones came rang at number 11. It was published in 1997. Um, but everything else was post, um, the, the growth of the collection, which does suggest some recency, you know, not, not necessarily surprising, but you might expect something like, I don't know, uh, the handmaid's tale you might've thought would creep up Mm -hmm. just Mm -hmm. because a lot of people read that over a lot of years, maybe as this, list ages like in 25 years will it be more i don't know evergreen modern classics classics Mm -hmm. type of titles i'd be curious i'd like to see the same list from like the new york public library when they cross the same threshold um i think the handmaid's tale was an interesting one to mention because that has definitely had a resurgence in the u.s but for obvious upsetting political reasons Mm -hmm. Uh, maybe the Canadians feel more secure. <laughs> right. Yeah. Booklist is as a, as a index of how nervous people are about specific subjects. Well, we have been having all the, I actually, I think they were on the two episodes that you weren't on recently, uh, but um, lots of stories about how sales of titles related to anxiety and anxiety management right. are like skyrocketing right now. Yeah. That's, that's interesting too. Um, all right. You want to do like our last to hear sponsor? About our, yeah. Yes, I would our, Look at us all simpatico. Um, our last sponsor today is How Are You Going to Save Yourself by J.M. Holmes. Bound together by shared experience, but pulled apart by their changing fortunes, four young friends coming of age in the post-industrial enclave of Pawtucket, Rhode Island, struggle to liberate themselves from the legacies left to them as black men in America. With potent immediacy and bracing candor, this provocative debut follows a decade in the lives of Dub, Rolls, Rye, and Geo as they each grapple with the complexity of their family histories, the newfound power of sex and drugs, and the ferocity of their desires. This is a collection of short stories. It shies away from nothing, confronting issues of race, sex, drugs, gender, and power imbalances with a refreshing frankness. Holmes writes complex characters in uncomfortable circumstances and forces the reader to look 
look at other people with empathy. Uh, J.M. Holmes was born in Denver, raised in Rhode Island, won the Burnett Howe, or Howe, sorry, the Burnett Howe Prize for Fiction at Amherst College, and received fellowships to the Iowa Writers Workshop and the Napa Valley Writers Conference. He's worked in educational outreach and uh, currently lives in Milwaukee. Esquire called this one of the best books of 2018 so far. Um, Entertainment Weekly has raved that Holmes' searing study of masculinity is offset by irresistible heart and biting humor. Um, This sounds like a bunch of things that I love, uh, sort of linked short stories. That element of four young friends coming of age together is similar to that, you know, band, get the band back together uh, kind Mm. of story that that we both are given to enjoy. So I'm going to be picking this up. The book is How Are You Going to Save Yourself by J.M. Holmes. You can find it wherever books are sold or click the link in our show notes. The much anticipated, well, much anticipated. Mm, By whom? Yeah, the announced. (laughs) The announced collaboration. Yes. Uh, collaboration between Walmart and the the awkwardly named Rakuten Kobo, and at least in the branding, uh, digital book partnership is now live. Um, Walmart ebook retailer Rakuten Kobo detailed plans to offer an array of ebook contents, reading service devices via Walmart stores and co-branded iOS and Android apps. So what this means is you can go into a Walmart and there's a section. I haven't been in a Walmart in a while. I don't know. This is by the book section. This is by the electronic section. Be interested to know. Maybe a little bit, a little bit of a column A, column B, where you can buy basically a Kobo reader that's branded Walmart eBooks by Rakat and Kobo because you know what you want is a giant you know logo on there. You can also buy digital book cards with download codes for more than forty titles. Will go on sale more than thirty five hundred Walmart stores. And Kobo tablets and digital e-readers will go on sale at about a thousand Walmart stores. So it sounds like there's going to be a lot of stores where you can buy the, the little cards with a download code. Mm-hmm. Then you can actually buy the devices, which I think is interesting. Um, the digital book cards we used to talk about this more than we do now, which I think is interesting for a couple reasons. One, because it's not a real presence that Amazon has, who's the nine thousand billion pound gorilla in this space. We can go into a store, and independent bookstores don't really do this, though you can, but it's kind of awkward through Kobo, um, buy them. But I don't think they have digital book cards where you can actually sort of pick up the card, check it out for, uh, you know, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Astrophysics for People in a Hurry, and then enter the code on your device and get it there. Also, an end around some of the platforms like iOS um, and Kindles and other sorts of things where you have to buy through their particular service. Um, that's interesting. Also, they're going to have a audiobook subscription service where for $10 a month, or excuse me, $9.95, excuse me, that's not correct, I'm four cents off, $9.99, you get access to one audiobook per month. I don't know what the selection will be like there. That'd be worth finding out because that does come in as less expensive than Audible's mm-hmm. $14.95 per month for one book. Uh, I think those are the salient details. Give me analysis. You know, yeah, those are the salient details. These individual book cards are the place that I'm just stuck. Yeah. Like, why? And if you have a Kobo e-reader or you have the Kobo app on one of your devices, you can buy any book that you want. Right. 
you know, you have to like log on. If you, if, if you're using the Kobo app on an iPhone, you have to log on to your Kobo account on a different device. You know, you can't purchase in the app, but you can get any book that you want. So what's the, as a reader, I don't understand why I would just pick up the card for the Da Vinci code and just buy that specifically mm-hmm. in a Walmart. Um, as a, I don't really well, understand cash. I always thought about this. Okay. The first time, as far as I can tell, that you could buy a digital book with just cash at a store because then you just get the download code. Anyway, I think right, that's but, worth talking about. But, anyway. but you could just buy a Kobo gift card. Like, why the specific title is the thing that I'm stuck on. Like, yeah, that's like, fair. Why would I want an Amazon, um, a specific Amazon download code for the Da Vinci Code instead of just an Amazon gift card I could use for any title? Like, I get being able to purchase the. I think that's an interesting insight that mm-hmm. you could purchase the thing using cash in the store and get the code where, you know, to purchase in an app, you have to put your credit card number in. Mm-hmm. So like that makes sense, but it's the purchase of one specific ebook in a store using a code that I like, I don't understand as a reader what the appeal of that would be. Um, I'm really curious and ha- about how Kobo and Walmart landed on this as a strategy, like maybe it's a foot in the door kind of thing. Yeah. Of like, well, if, if we make it for the girl on the train and everybody is reading the girl on the train, maybe people will be enticed to pick up this one thing and then they'll discover that they like the Kobo app and then they'll buy more. I don't know, but I'm very just kind of Scooby-Doo confused noise about that element. Um, it also seems very late yeah. to be introducing an e-reader. Um, I'm surprised that Walmart hasn't gotten in on this game, honestly, uh, earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also, I think I'll just be wa- wondering and watching with some interest about how successful or not it is because Kobo is also the least recognizable name in the ebook game here. So you're taking Walmart, which is a big sort of like middle of the road swath of America brand um, and showing it a brand name for Kobo that most, I think most general readers don't know of. And so most general customers of just a big box store like Walmart would not have heard of the way that they've heard of Amazon. Um, So I'm just kind of interested there. It it seems like there's some barriers to entry. Um, And yeah, yeah. If, I I, if I were taking this, like if this were my project and I was trying to convince Walmart to do this, I understand why Kobo would do it, obviously. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, maybe that's right. worth saying for a minute. Like you get in 2,000 Walmart stores, that's huge for someone like Kobo who's really trying to be make a case for the strong number four or five. I mean, behind, behind iBooks and Google, I would guess, they're behind their still in, in American eBooks at least. I think... I think I would think of this in terms, and not sure I would do this project for Walmart, but I say if I did, I would do it using the sort of crossing the chasm metaphor of mm. consumer adoption of technology. I think this is for the very last people interested in getting on this boat at all. That it's at Walmart, they're not necessarily going to be anyone who's a sophisticated technology user at all, I'm guessing, and is interested in ebooks has already made a switch or decide on their platform or, or whatever, this is making it dead simple to buy and download and read ebooks. You just need money to buy the card and you can download it and put it on right there. You don't even getting a gift card and redeeming it and then setting up your account through Amazon, 
if you're the last of the techno, you know, the least techno, technologically inclined, savvy, or trustworthy, whatever, whatever reason, this is kind of the this is the ebook equivalent of putting cash in your mattress. Well, but you still have to set up an account. Yeah, like but you, I'm saying you, you, do you have the tech to do thing. you have to do at least that. But like this is as simple as it can be because you have to send a. There's no situation in which you don't have to set an account. Like assuming that this is the the simplest, most basic implementation of purchasing ebooks, then is there any is this is there any uh, cake in the left in the is there any batter left in the cake pan here to scrape <laughs> out for Walmart? I don't know, but that's what I would yeah. say. You know, I but, mean. Maybe like but if the you demographics do it, of Walmart are different though they're just a different true. demographic. But, like I think I don't it, know that they're going to buy this. I don't know if this is interesting product, right. but if they're going to be interested in one, I think this is it. Does that make? But sense? if you, yeah, I go. I guess I think though, if you do this once, like if you are the last possible person interested, and you yeah. do it once, like you you get your card for the girl on the train, and you set up your Kobo e reader or your right. new Kobo app, and like you go through that process, what's the second transaction? Like, does that customer? keep going back to Walmart to buy specific one title digital book cards, or do they become a regular online ebook customer? Like it would seem to me that Walmart here wants them to continue coming back in the store, but I I have a hard time imagining that pattern. And it is a very dim, like this is a different demographic and certainly a different kind of reader and book customer than we are. So it's possible this is just a failure of perspective or imagination on my part, but I, I'm having a hard time seeing. Well, they may like, not know either. Know, I mean, maybe they don't true. know. And they're just trying. But at 2,500 stores is a lot for a test. I don't know. Maybe these things were available before. I mean, I think it's Kobo doing what Kobo does, which is they have an infrastructure for delivering DR management account systems for eBooks, relationship with the publishers, and that what Walmart has, which is physical real estate. Mm-hmm. Do the combination of those two things make for anything? I don't know the answer to that. I think. I mean, maybe the, maybe people who shop at Walmart and the kind of person that pick up one would pick up another if they like the experience. You know, if maybe, they've done one, know, they might do a second. Here's the thing I wonder is what is the selection yes. going to be like ultimately? Because Walmart is also known for um, choosing not to stock yeah. like, certain kinds of titles that they perceive to be too progressive or risque for their target customer in the book sections of Walmart stores. So is it the full, like through the Walmart Kobo eBooks app, is it the full Kobo catalog or is it, you know, curated Walmart eBooks? Yeah. It um, says the, Walmart the, the one in is store them. is 40 titles. So mm-hmm. I don't know there. The Walmart could bring some bear, some pricing pressure if you know a publisher might be interested in making a sweetheart ebook deal and maybe you know this doesn't say what the pricing of the ebooks are going to mm-hmm. be in this i mean they when, could have a nine dollar ebook yeah. where amazon's been very interested in keeping those kindle prices high as anyone who's listened to the podcast knows i don't really care about ebook pricing they can do what they want i have mm-hmm. no feelings about it whatsoever but this would be an interesting play like our ebooks are nine dollars where you got the same thing as fourteen ninety nine at Kindle is interesting. Yeah, it is, and it does look. I re, I think I recall from when this was announced that like this functions through its own Walmart eBooks app. It's not like yeah. reading in the Kobo app, and that you'll be able to purchase eBooks on the Walmart website as well. Mm-hmm. So like some curation, I think, could be happening through Walmart. Right. I don't know if it is happening, but I'm I wonder about the selection there too. If you get the full like wide open ocean of books that are available, or if Walmart's brand value have been applied to the selection of books here. 
Um, which, which would be business and not censorship. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> we may not like it, but it's not no, censorship. This is a distinction that we should care about. Yeah. If you have been seeing this in Walmart, if you know of a use case of this that we're not thinking about, or if you have a sense that one of our use cases may be more or less interesting, shoot us an email, podcast at bookriot.com. Show notes. All the links to the stuff we've talked about today is available in the show notes, which are at bookriot.com slash listen, navigate to the Book Riot podcast. You can find them there. Thanks to our sponsors this week, as always, for making the show possible. That's Elizabeth Warren by Antonia Felix, uh, Nightblood. Oh, I'm not going to forget the name. Ellie Blake. Ellie Blake. Uh, well, Google Play. Google Play books. Um, I'm not going to read the link. There's a link in the show notes under, there's always a link to our sponsors directly. I don't know if I've said that before. Um, there's a, there's a said, there's a little section says this episode is sponsored by, and there's links and then links discussed in this episode. And then how are you going to save yourself by JM Holmes? Also, thanks to them, Rebecca, maybe we'll even talk on Thursday, like on a regular day at a regular time. Well, maybe. We'll see. Well, let's not get too crazy. One thing it won't be is just me talking into the microphone. (laughs) Rest easy, folks. All right. Bye, guys. Have a good one.